0: turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. As I mentioned to you the last time we studied from the book of Proverbs that King Solomon's Proverbs are now over with the end of chapter 29. And we have some appendices from a couple of different authors, and we will continue to pursue chapters 30 and 31 until we come, Lord willing, to the end of this great book. In the very first chapter and in the very first section of John Calvin's classic book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which, by the way, has been the topic of our pastoral staff's reading and talking about over the last couple of years. We have worked our way through the first of two volumes of that great classic by John Calvin, and uh, recently, as we've worked our way through the first section of Volume 2, we have reached page 900 and we are continuing to read and talk about the impact of John Calvin's teaching on our own life. And in that book, in that classic work within Christianity, John Calvin states the following. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which which one proceeds and brings forth the other, is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God, in whom he lives and moves. For, quite clearly, the many gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. The miserable ruin, Calvin goes on to say, into which the rebellion of the first man cast us, especially compels us to look upward. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. Accordingly. The knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find Him. Now, I can't be sure, of course, but I truly wonder if John Calvin wasn't thinking of Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 to 6, when he originally penned those words. If he wasn't thinking about Proverbs 30, he most certainly could have, because Calvin's words fit so appropriately with the author of this portion of Scripture and what he's describing. Listen to what the author of this section of Proverbs says in verses 1 to 6 of Proverbs 30. The words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh, the oracle... The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Yukal, surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in His garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is His name or His Son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar." The author, Agar, like Calvin after him, is essentially saying that there are only two kinds of knowledge. The knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God. And that's why I've titled this message and the one next time, Knowing God. Because that's what Agar wants us to do. He wants us to know God. And that's what Calvin began to say in the very first page of his Institutes of the Christian Religion that in order for us to know ourselves, in order for us to have a right knowledge of ourselves, we must have a knowledge of God. When we began in the Christian life to ponder ourselves, we learned so readily that any knowledge that we have attained in this life is directly because of the gift of the knowledge of God. And if we don't pursue that kind of knowledge under God, in His world, and for our good, we don't possess any knowledge at all. You cannot begin to ponder yourself. You cannot hope to ponder the world unless you ponder God. You cannot understand yourself without first being forced to come to grips with the reality that there is in the heart of every man a conscious awareness of God, a God with whom we are accountable. Now with this in mind, you could actually outline the first four verses of this chapter by looking at two very simple things. Number one, the futility of augurs' wisdom sort of in a biographical, autobiographical setting. And secondly, he widens it to the failure of all human wisdom. Number one, the futility of augurs' wisdom by his own self-attestation. And then secondly, widening it to the failure of all human wisdom, not just his own, but what he tells us about the failure of all human wisdom apart from the revelation of God. Now this is most amazing. Let's look first at the futility of augur's wisdom in verses 1, 2, and 3. Notice what he says again. The words of Agur, the son of Yaqeh, the oracle. The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Now, in order for us to set the context of who it is that is speaking to us, let's first look at this man, Agur. What do we know about him? What's Agur's biography? He says in verse 1, about himself, the words of Agur, the son of Yaka, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. What do we know? What's Agur's biography? We know so much about King Solomon. Who is this man who has now come to us bursting on the scenes right out of Solomon's finishing of his Proverbs? What do we know about Agur? Here's the answer. Nothing nothing. We don't know anything about him. We don't know a thing. Now some have suggested that because of that this may have been some kind of a poetic license on the part of Solomon or those who were recording Solomon's Proverbs and that this is really a veiled name for Solomon himself. I mean it sounds plausible but the vast majority of the church throughout the ages, the vast majority of interpreters, even though maybe Jewish interpreters of the past, may have likened him to Solomon, if not Solomon himself, the vast majority of the Christian church has dismissed that and fairly easily. This is not Solomon. This is Agar. In fact, the name itself appears to be a non-Hebrew name. Now we don't know much about this non-Israelite origin of the name or the person, but it does say that Agar is the son of Ya'keh, and some have suggested, well, that's probably a, a way of saying Yahweh, but that's not true, it's not really that at all, it's just a man and his son, it's Ya'keh and Agar. and even though his name also appears, and it appears to be of non-Israelite origin, we simply don't know where this man Ya'keh or his son Agar comes from. His biography is therefore a mystery. We don't know. But what we do know is this, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, with a wonderful privilege, has given this man, even though we don't know anything about him, the honor of writing Holy Scripture. And what an honor that is. Even if we don't know anything about him, God does. And what we do know from verse 1 is that he is bringing an oracle to, to us. Do you see it there? the oracle. Normally an oracle was something that a prophet would bring, right? A, An account, a story, a, a prophecy that he would tell the people. But this is not an, a normal oracle that a prophet would speak. This is more of sort of a non-prophetic kind of story. And he gives this story in proverbial fashion. It's a poetic device. And if you stay with us through this study, you'll know that almost all of the rest of chapter 30 after verse 6, beginning in verse 7, are what we call numeric Proverbs. If you read through chapter 30, as we will, you'll find out that several times he gives a number, uh, three things, four things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is a way that Agur determines, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to teach us about life and living through these Proverbs. It's his kind of oracle." And notice also, he gives this oracle, this this story, this poetry to Ithiel. What do we know about him? Nothing. And what about Ucal or Ucal? Nothing. Sorry, can't help you. Don't know anything about them. And by the way, Ucal has nothing to do with the University of California. Nothing. We don't know anything now it's possible that augur is teaching his sons it may be that ithiel and ucal are his sons or at the very least maybe they are simply his trainees his disciples and he's teaching them and what is fascinating about verse 2 of this passage is the honesty with which augur begins to speak he fully begins to acknowledge that apart from divine revelation he as a man has no knowledge of the world around him or even a knowledge of himself. And that goes right back to what Calvin said. That's what he was driving toward when he spoke about our critical need for the knowing of God, for finding God, for being led by the hand so as to find Him. For only then will you discover this God and consequently discovering yourself and your world. Notice what Auger says in verse 2. I call it augur's brutishness. Surely, verse 2, he says, I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. What is he talking about? I mean, that sounds diabolical. And when he refers to himself as stupid, by the way, young people, don't use that word. Don't use this as a biblical justification for using that word. Well, the pastor said it a number of times. He says it about himself and it really could be just as well translated as brutish. The word literally referring to cattle. What does he mean? Surely I'm like cattle. Surely I'm like an animal. Here's what he means. Apart from divine revelation, Apart from God disclosing Himself to me, Agur says this, I'm like an unreasoning animal. I'm like a senseless cattle. I'm I'm a cow who doesn't understand anything. I'm like an animal who, apart from God revealing Himself to me, is a man who understands nothing about the world. That's what he's saying. Surely, I am more stupid than any man, even humbly saying, I'm, I'm even the lowest of the low on the human totem pole. I'm like a senseless animal. And although in a different context, this same word, stupid or brutish, is used by Asaph in Psalm 73 in verses 21 and 22. He says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In other words, when you compare yourself with God Almighty, you can come to the place when you realize and perceive His vast, complete, perfect, full knowledge, and you compare it to your own, and it makes you think that you're like a brute, a beast, a senseless animal. Indeed, Agur says also here in verse 2, I do not have the understanding of a man, It's as though he's saying something about himself when it comes to the knowledge of God. And that something is this. I'm little more, maybe even little less than a senseless animal. I don't have any understanding. I'm stupid. I'm more stupid than any man. I don't have the understanding even of a man. I don't know anything. I'm a brute in my understanding of things divine. Now, how would you like to start your autobiography out like that? Well, he's driving toward a point, and this is where he's beginning. Biographically, it's it's not as though he's even likening his own knowledge to that of a child. And sometimes we would even say that. Even the Apostle Paul says, when I was a child, I acted as a child. I did things child, uh, children do. But when I matured, when I grew up, when I became a man, I put away what? Childish things. Agra is saying, I'm even below that. Apart from a knowledge of God, apart from God's revelation to me, I don't know anything. I'm, I'm subhuman. I don't know anything. I know things only by instinct and by, by rote, not by rationality. I mean, he's hard on himself. And he's trying to prove the point. He's trying to prove the point that apart from God's grace... Apart from God's enabling, apart from God descending to us and giving us a knowledge of Himself, apart from that, every one of us would be like these unreasoning beasts These senseless animals who know nothing and anything we know is by instinct, by road and not by rationality because apart from God intervening in the affairs of human life and telling us about his world, the world that he created, we know nothing of it. We know nothing of the universe that God has created and sustained. That's why he says in his biography, I'm a brute. I don't know anything. And he even descends further. Look in verse 3, augurs bewailing, neither have I learned wisdom nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. He's lamenting here. He's turning his lament into a bewailing of the fact that apart from God's intervention in his life, he's utterly incapable of understanding anything. It's as if he's saying, I may have lived long enough to accumulate myriads of facts and reams of information, but when it comes to things divine, I've learned nothing. I've learned nothing. Doesn't that remind you of the preacher, maybe Solomon himself, in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7? He says in verses 23 and 24, I tested all this, all the things that he was seeing, all the things that he was perceiving in life, all of his experiences. He says, I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise. In other words, all of my experiences, my eyes were wide open, my ears were hearing everything, I was perceiving everything around me, and I said to myself, with all of the accumulation of this knowledge, this understanding, this perception of all things in my world, surely because of that, I will be wise. Here's his response. But it was far from me. What has been is remote. And exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? You remember Jeremiah seventeen nine? It says the heart, the heart of mankind, is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately wicked. And then this question Who can know it? Who can know it apart from God's intervention? We don't even know our own hearts. We don't know anything about the world. We don't know anything about how things are as they are and should be as they should be apart from God. Who can understand it? Our own wickedness brings us to the place where we admit or we should that I don't know anything. I have no learned wisdom nor the knowledge of the Holy One. You know what Auger's doing? He's replicating in graphic language, what Solomon has already said in the first part of the book of Proverbs, namely in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord, here it is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And you see, everyone, everyone is born a fool. Everyone is born a fool coming out of the womb. And if you don't have God intervening in your life by His grace, through the Spirit, you don't understand the world as it really is. You don't understand how life is to be lived. You don't have the requisite skill for life and living. You're like that heart of Jeremiah 17. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I gathered all this information, all this reams of data, and it's far from me. Proverbs nine ten The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And Augur bewails the fact, Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. He's, he's desperately lamenting that he has no knowledge of the Holy One, Israel's God. You know what he's like? He's like Isaiah in Isaiah six, he's undone. He's he's pondering the reality that apart from God, apart from God's Word, he knows nothing. He is nothing. And you say, wait a minute, but doesn't he have enough light within himself because he's realizing this, because he's recognizing this, not apart from the light of the knowledge of God himself? The only light he has has let him know, at least in his initial search, is that he has no light within himself. And this is amazing. This is the, this is the futility of one man's search for knowledge, the knowledge of God, knowing God apart from divine wisdom. And it doesn't just end with him. He's, he's not just some poor fellow. It's just not his own futility. It's not just like Koheleth or the preacher, Solomon, it's just not like that one who says, I did everything I could, I tried to find the knowledge of the world, I went all around, I studied, I learned, I investigated, I experienced, and I realized that I was far from knowing God. It's not just a couple of guys who are writing in our Bibles, it's all of us. It's not just the futility of Agur's own wisdom, it's the failure of all human wisdom. We're all in the same boat, and it's not a pretty sight. Look at verse 4, Proverbs 30, verse 4. This is the failure of all human wisdom. Notice who, Agur says, has ascended into heaven and descended. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, or his son's name? Surely you know. What is he doing? Agur's asking a series of questions which is further serving to indict not just himself but the whole human race. It's the failure on the part of the entire human race to understand rightly the knowledge of themselves and the knowledge of God. It's not just Agur's problem, it's our problem. It's the problem of the human race. And he does it ingeniously. He asks a series of questions. Here's the first one. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? In other words, if someone were to come along... And say, no, no, no! You're wrong, Agur. You're wrong. I, I have wisdom. I don't know anything about Yahweh. I don't any. I don't know anything about the the Holy One of Israel. But I'm telling you, I have ascertained. I've searched out wisdom. I know what it is. And Agur says, How? How have you done it? And he says, in fanciful terms, I ascended into heaven and I found the kind of wisdom that I needed, and I've now descended from above to below and I'm now announcing it to the world. I've just described the autobiography of Deepak Chopra. That's an example just in our 21st century with somebody who presumes that he knows the ins and outs of the universe. I've just given you the sense of Oprah Winfrey who believes that apart from special revelation rightly interpreted and rightly taught and rightly applied, that there are people, mystics in the world, just like Deepak Chopra and others, who could give us a sense of the divine, who could tell us about the world by the conjuring up of wisdom in their own minds and from their own knowledge. It's just like someone who says... I've carried back wisdom from above. And Augur says, question number one Can any man carry back wisdom from above? Who has ascended into heaven and descended? He asks this rhetorical question as it regards what man? Any man who can actually ascend into the very throne room of God and stay there long enough in order to grasp perfect, complete knowledge and understanding, including the wisdom to know how to successfully live life on earth, let alone understanding the complexity of the entire universe, and then who descends back to earth and communicates this wisdom to others? I want to meet him. Where is he? Who is that man? You see, it's the failure of all human meanderings, human knowledge, human searches of wisdom apart from the divine. Here's the rhetorical question. Who is that man? Where is he? You know what the answer is? He doesn't exist. The answer is no one. It's impossible for man, any man, even one who has admitted to himself that when compared to the almighty we're like brutes, like Agar himself, that apart from God coming to us, we're unable to ascend to him. You can't do it. Nobody can foolishly, pridefully presume that they can just, just waft their way to heaven, grab some knowledge, come back down and say, I've got the truth. It doesn't work that way. You can't descend to earth with what you believe is some acceptable, life-giving, sufficient understanding of the world, and just go into your local bookstore. Just find all of the books from all the people that say, I've gone to heaven. I've got knowledge. I've got the secret knowledge. It's all of the present-day Gnostics. can't happen. Wasn't this, by the way, the very sin issue in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3.5. Satan says, God knows that in the day you eat from it, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he twisted it all the way around so that Eve would be tempted to believe about herself that she was being held out by God of the real knowledge of good and evil and that didn't set well with her and so she decided... Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that it, the tree, was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. You see, that's an attempt, my friends, to attain the knowledge of the universe, the wisdom of the world, apart from God's instructions, apart from God's commands, They were specifically prohibited from only one tree, and Satan duped them into believing that it was the one tree for which God was holding out on them the very knowledge of good and evil, and they took the bait because they wanted to be wise. Wasn't that also the very folly of the Tower of Babel? Remember that? Genesis 11.4. They said, Come! Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. You see, ascending into heaven. Just build a building, a tower, and let us make for ourselves a name, the Bible says. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And that's exactly what happened. Because they tried to attain wisdom. They tried to ascend into the very portals of heaven apart from God's command and design. And He scattered them over the face of the earth and were still scattered. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Jeremiah 8.9 says, says, the wise men are put to shame, they are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what kind of wisdom do they have? You see, the Bible cuts through all the fog, and it gives us in black and white terms the ultimate choice. It is either the wisdom of man and what he pursues, or the wisdom from God and what he grants. That's it. That's the choice. You remember Romans 1? For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. You see, you're trying to pursue wisdom apart from God's way, God's requirements, God's commands, God's avenue. 1 Corinthians one twenty, we read it this morning for our Scripture reading. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age, Paul says? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? James 3.15, it may well sum up the point Augur is here making. This earthly wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. See, it's just a black and white issue. Agur is saying it's true of my own person and it's true of the whole world. Feudal and a failure. Our only hope, our only hope, listen to this, is for God Himself to come down to earth and impart to us His own wisdom. That's it. Do you remember Jacob? Look at Genesis chapter 28. Do you remember This scene with Jacob, who is renamed Israel. This is a, this is a fascinating picture in Genesis 28. You remember Jacob's dream? Genesis 28 verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, now is this a depiction of men, human beings, going up and down this ladder to grab the knowledge of God and coming back and imparting it to us? No, it's reserved for the angels of God who were ascending and descending on it. God's messengers. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Don't miss that. The Lord stood above it, always above it, land on which you lie, he says, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Apart from God's revelation, Jacob doesn't know that. You see? Can't conjure that up on his own. He can hope, he can believe, but only God can tell him the truth. Only God is the revelation for him. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He received divine revelation. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I'll say. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. You see, apart from God doing this, we don't know God. You don't know Him. That's, that's Augur's first question. Can any man carry wisdom from above back to earth? No. Question number two. Can any man control the wind and waves? Look at verse 4 again. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? I mean, Agur is just incredulous. He's asking the question, how can created beings, how can human beings, created and sinful as they are, assume that they can control the creation rather than the Creator himself being the controller? That's his question. What man, any man, has gathered the wind in his fists? Point him out to me. I want to meet him. I want his autograph. He's going to go on late night TV. He's going to shock the world. Where is he? Any man who could take the very winds of the world and place them in his fists like he owns them? Who controls the wind? is it that can take all the winds of the world and grab them with His fist and then fling the wind wherever He wants to? Now, I'd like to meet Him. That's power. And notice what He says, who has wrapped the waters in His garment? You know what He's talking about? He's talking about a water cloud. He's saying, here's, here's water, and what God does is that He takes a cloud as though it were a garment, like a coat, and He puts the garment around the water, and then He moves the cloud where He wants, and then He opens up the garment, and the water falls out into the ocean and creates the seas. Now, augur says, now what man can do that? Tell me. Exodus 15.10 Remember this? You, God, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them, Pharaoh and his army. Remember that scene? I mean, God just, just with the breath of his, his nostrils, just blowing the water open and the children of Israel walked through and then he breathed back in and all the water crashed over Pharaoh and his army. Moses says in that song in Exodus 15, you did that, God. You did that. Psalm 104.3, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot, he walks upon the wings of the wind. He's in charge, not us, not puny man. We can't even create most anything let alone create the wind and the waves. Psalm 135, 7, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth from the wind its treasuries. Amos four thirteen. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is His name. You think any man can stack up with that? Point him out to me. Give me his name. I want to meet him. That's a powerful dude. Where is he? Job 26.8. He wraps up the water. The water's in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. Our God, the God of the universe, controls every cloudburst every one of them Job 38 verses 8 and 9 who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band no man mark it down no man can control the wind and the waves where is he? point him out to me question number three can any man construct the shape of the earth? Look again at verse 4. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Tell me who he is. Tell me who this man is. I, I want to meet him. I mean, can, can any man take his hammer and his chisel and create the whole earth? That's his point. Any any man can do that? Where is he? He'd be the, the greatest engineer, the greatest builder in the history of the universe because he created it all. Where is he? Can he construct the very shape and form of the entire world? And yet, you know, you know as well as I do, just read in the papers of the of the massive pride of human beings who think that they can create, who think that they could, in fact, do something like this. Oh, they might say, oh, well, no, you're talking hyperbolically here. Of course we can't do that. But look at the discoveries of man. Look at how far we've advanced. We're in the postmodern world now. Look at the computer age. We've got it all wired. Job 38.4. You remember? Do <laughs> you remember when Job kept asking God the question, I want to meet with you. In one sense, he was saying it like this, I've got a bone to pick with you. If I'm the righteous man, then why are all these things happening to me? I've got some questions, and I want to talk to the Almighty. Might I have a word with you? Job 38, verse 4. Here's God's answer. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you? You're going to contend with me? You're going you're gonna to contend with the Almighty? You're going to ask me questions? You're going to instruct me? Psalm 24, first two verses. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God has done that. Not some man. Proverbs 8, beginning in verse 27. When He established the heavens, I, wisdom, I was there when He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress His command, and when He marked out the foundations of the earth. Where were we? Where were we? We weren't even around. We weren't even born. We'd not yet been created. Isaiah forty-five eighteen. The Lord... The Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Here He is. I am the Lord, and there is none else." That's, that's what Hager is trying to get us to see. So, There's no human wisdom and ingenuity that could think all this up, let alone construct the whole world? It's massive pride to think that you could do this. Here's his fourth question. This is the the ultimate. Look at the latter end of verse 4. Can any man claim to be God? Here he is. Show me, what is his name? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. I want to meet him. If that man does indeed exist, tell me his name. Tell me his son's name. I want to meet him. He's baiting the question. He's begging the question. That man does not exist. There's no one who can claim to be the one who carries wisdom back from above. There is no one who can rightly claim to be the one who controls the wind and the waves. There is no one who constructs the shape and form of the earth. If he's around, where is he? I want to meet him. Tell me his son's name. Surely you know his name, don't you? If he's here, he would have to make a claim to divinity because only God can do all of these things. I told you about God's response to Job. I wish we could read Job 38 through 41. We don't have that time. But they are chapters filled with God's indictment of human pride. First 1 of chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? In other words, who's given bad counsel? And then he tells Job this, now gird your loins, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, who instructs me? Who instructs me? Verse 1 of chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? You're going to find fault with me? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then in verse 34 of chapter 41, right at the end of God's own indictment of Job, the Bible says, He looks, does God, on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. You know what Job says in response, chapter 42? After four chapters, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. My mouth is closed. I have nothing to say. You want to see another one of these? Look at Isaiah 40. This is another text, just like Proverbs 30 and, and Job 38 to 42. This is this is this is amazing. You know Isaiah 40. Look at verse 12. Here's here's Isaiah's answer just like Augur's answer in Proverbs 30. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span? And who calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he, God, lifts up the islands like fine dust. Look at verse eighteen. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. That's that's what Augur's saying. A man is attempted to construct his own God. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. Who makes the judges of the earth meaningless? Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But He merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eye and see Who has created these stars? The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. Verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. You know, after a sermon like this, you ask this question. Who is a God like our God and what is man? What is man? And I think without doing violence to what Agur is saying here with these rhetorical questions, which are of course all designed to be answered in the negative, I might propose to you that I actually do know a man. I do know a man who, who, who actually fits all these descriptions. Yes. Yes, most certainly. His name is Jesus, and He's no mere man. He's the God-man, and that's why He's ultimately the only one who can possibly fulfill what Augur is asking about. Go back through the list. Look at question number one. Can any man carry back wisdom from above? Here's the answer. Here it is. John 3.13. No one, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus is the answer to that question. Question number two. Can any man control the wind and waves? You know the answer. Mark four. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. The disciples became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Here's the question. Who? Who in this world controls the wind and the waves? His name is Jesus the Christ. That's who. Question number three, can any man construct the very shape of the earth? Here's the answer, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by Him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Who constructed the very shape of the world? Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's who. Question number four. Can any man claim to be God? John 10. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. Claim to deity. Who can claim to be God? Christ. Christ claims to be God. We know that that's what His claim was because it says in that text, the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him, and the Jews answered Him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see? They understood what He was claiming. Augur says, who can claim to be God? What is His name and His Son's name? Surely you know. Yes, I know. His name is Jesus, the Nazarene. He claimed to be God. And He is God. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, listen to this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. He's God in human flesh, and He's the answer to all of these questions. Bow together with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, if Augur were here in our presence today, with the fuller revelation that we possess in our New Testaments, I am quite confident that He would answer his own last question in this way regarding the knowledge of God and the needing of his wisdom. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Augur would say his name is Yahweh God of Exodus three, I am who I am. And his son's name is Jesus the Christ. Who in John eight fifty eight said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Is that your answer today? From where you sit, do you believe that all human wisdom is a complete failure apart from God's imparting His own wisdom to us? Do you believe that apart from God's own granting of it, we are but dust and the whole enterprise of gaining the necessary wisdom is futile? If that's what's resonating in your heart, if you're convicted that you've attempted to know God, you've attempted to know the world, you've attempted to know yourself apart from God's wisdom, it's futile and an abject failure. Believe in the God man, Jesus Christ, who alone is the answer to Augur's question. Believe in Him, savingly, for eternal life. In His name we pray. Amen.